the conflict conga line today. You came into church and you want a little peace in your life. We're going to talk about our favorite subject in the world, which is conflict. And you know you have enough of it in your life, right? Some of you wake up dreading conflict. You go to bed frustrated by it. You even dream about conflict. Some of you are mad at somebody today because they did something to you in a dream. And they're like, what? What's going on? Conflict will find us no matter what. If I'm an alien race and I'm looking at humanity, I'm thinking, boy, they like conflict because they spend a lot of time thinking about it, planning for it, trying to avoid it. Do we have any avoiders in the house? Yeah, you know who you are. Do we have anybody that likes to kind of roll up their sleeves and go, oh, yeah, conflict? Don't raise your hand because you're scaring me. (laughs) Conflict, it's just everywhere. We buy books on conflict, and sometimes we even read them. We go to seminars. We may even take like a conflict management course or an assessment to find our conflict management style. It just fills our lives. In fact, some of you came in today. And actually, you're in the middle of it, and you're angry, and you're frustrated, and you're wondering, and you're maybe anxious on how this is all going to play out. And you think about the other person, and, and, and man, may, maybe, maybe you really love the other person, and your heart is breaking because of this conflict. One of the things I love about the scriptures is that they tend to just be really honest with the human experience. It's one of the things that makes the Bible ring true to me. And there's conflict from one end to the other because this is our experience. In fact, Jesus had a lot to say about conflict. He, he had conflict in his own life. He had conflict with the religious leaders. He had conflict with his own family. He had conflict with his closest friends, his followers that we call the disciples. He even had a bit of conflict within himself at times. He was acquainted with the human experience. And and he had some some lessons, actually. Right before he, he dies, about a week before he dies, he's with the disciples, and they're getting ready to go into Jerusalem, and it'll only be about seven days, and he'll be hanging on a cross. But he knows that he's going to send them out on this mission of love out into the world. And so he has some words of wisdom for them about conflict. And his words actually surprised them. They they, they surprised the disciples. They weren't expecting it because when heaven sneaks up on you, it surprises you. They surprised His disciples, the words of Jesus, because of the culture and the context that they lived in. They lived in this top-down culture. A few weeks ago, Pastor Brad talked about lowering ourselves and becoming like children. And, And that was Jesus in response to the question of the disciples, who is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? In this culture that you're building, Jesus, in this kingdom of heaven, who's the greatest? They knew who the greatest was in their culture. Usually it was the men who were of a certain ethnicity, who were religiously a certain way, who had power and maybe wealth, and they were well-educated. They knew who was greatest in their culture. But Jesus was actually building a different culture. 
And this confused them. You mean lower myself? Be something other than first place? It doesn't make sense, Jesus. And then he goes on from there in the, in, in the very same chapter, and, and, and his words were confusing to them because they just seemed too radical. They seemed to go too far at times. I mean, Jesus says that we ought to take our actions so seriously that, that maybe we ought to just chop our hand off or chop our foot off or gouge out our eye. In fact, if we cause one of these little ones, which was actually a way to refer to a fellow follower of Jesus, not just children... If you make one of these little ones stumble, maybe you ought to just tie a big millstone around your neck and be hurled into the depths of the sea and drown. Jesus was doing what great rabbis did at the time. In fact, fact, teachers and authors, communicators do it nowadays. They use this exaggerative language to make a very serious point. And Jesus' point here is that love means that we take how we treat one another seriously. How do our actions land on one another? There's this radical self-awareness that Jesus wants us to have. This was surprising to his disciples. The other reason why his words were surprising is because sometimes they just sounded impractical. I mean, Jesus talks about sheep. He was always talking about sheep. I don't know. And, and, and you got a hundred sheep and one of them wanders off. And so you got the 99 on the hill and Jesus says, go, go after that one that wandered away. And, and we're thinking sometimes, well, why would I go after that one? He didn't want to be with us anyway. Just let him go. Forget him. What if I'm off searching for the one and the 99 over, over here and then five more wander away? And then what if I'm off looking for those five and somebody comes in and steals 10 more? I mean, can't we just cut our losses and be done with it and just avoid this thing altogether. It didn't make sense to them. It was surprising to them. But in the economy that Jesus was creating, everyone matters. At Lakeside, we say we want to transform as many people as possible. You know who that is? The as many as people as possible? It's you. It's your children. It's your best friends. It's your parents. It's the person sitting next to you. And so Jesus is building a new culture, a new kingdom. It's the kingdom of heaven, and it's surprising, and it sneaks up on us. It's very unlike the culture that his followers lived in. And he's inviting them into a system where everybody matters, everybody's valued. A a way of living, a way of being human where there's radical self-awareness and a way of doing life together where we actually lower our status towards one another and we serve each other. 
And it's in this context, in Matthew chapter 18, that Jesus talks about conflict. And so if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 18. If you have one of the church Bibles, we have the, the page number up on the screen for you. And uh, if you have the YouVersion app, there's some extra things in there. And so download that onto your phone, hit the menu button, go to events, and you'll find Lakeside Church on there and be able to follow along. Matthew chapter 18, look down in verse 15, and let's listen to Jesus' words about conflict. He says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. If they listen, if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, take one or two others along so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan, which was a way of saying an outsider, or a tax collector, which is very ironic, and we'll get to that in a little while. If I'm being honest, I don't, I, I don't want to teach on this passage. I don't want to. I taught on this passage once already at Lakeside, and I didn't want to do it the first time, but God said, okay, you need to teach on this. If I'm being really honest, I wasn't originally scheduled to teach on this, but, you know, things change, and God says, okay, you're going to step up to the plate, and you're going to teach on this. If I'm really being honest, I don't want to teach on this passage. First of all, because it's hard. I mean, if if we take this process seriously, it just takes so much humility. It takes loads of wisdom. It takes crazy amounts of self-awareness. And it just takes too long most of the time. I mean, can't I just avoid it and be done with it? But that's not the way of Jesus. He doesn't let us off the hook. The other reason I, I don't want to teach on this passage is because I, I've actually seen this passage used as a clobber passage. You know what that is? You take it and you clobber somebody with it. I, I, I've, I've seen people use it and abuse it and misquote it, and, 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 and I've seen churches. I've been in the audience when churches have used this for public shaming and shunning, and manipulation, and control. But that's also not the way of Jesus. I'd rather not teach on this passage, but <laughs> to, to be honest with you, it, it's there. We can't ignore it. We've got to get into it. We, we've, we've got to deal with it. Jesus said it. We need to unpack it. And I actually believe, to the core of my being, that if we take it seriously... And if we embrace the kind of culture that we just talked about, where, that Jesus has laid out with his disciples, that he will give us both the wisdom and the courage to walk through the process of conflict resolution, even in some of the most difficult circumstances. And so let's look 
at this passage. It begins and it says, if your brother or sister sins. And so right away we have this particular advice, which, which may be useful for any sort of conflict, but its context is between a follower of Jesus and another follower of Jesus. The context is the community of faith. And some of this advice will work really well in any sort of conflict resolution, and some of it won't work so well. But Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, and so this is talking about the church here. You do know that the role of the church in the world is not to be the sin police, right? I mean, we know that. That the, that the role that we have is not to go out into the world and hammer everybody on everything that they do that is wrong. That's not our vocation. It doesn't say that God so loved the world that he sent his son to rake everybody over the coals of shame and guilt and wretchedness. This is not how God responds to our sin. Instead, it says that God so loved the world that he gave. And when he gave, he goes to the cross for you and for me. One of our values at Lakeside is that we give ourselves to others. I don't know about you, but I... One of the the problems that I have with this passage is that I sin all the time, every day. And I, the last thing I need is somebody with like the sin magnifying glass following me around going fault, 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 fault. I mean, I mean, really, really. We are not the sin police towards the world. And actually, we're not the sin police towards one another as well. There is a time to speak out. There are many different ways that we can be the light of the world. But that's, that's sort of a different talk. What we're talking about here is how do we deal with conflict and hurt towards one another as followers of Jesus? And by the way, as we do this, the world is watching. The world is watching. And the world isn't like just these nameless, faceless people out there. It's the people that know you. It's your family. It's the people that you work with, the people that you're going to invite to Christmas Eve gathering. They watch how we deal with conflict. I just believe that the world will really not care so much about what we believe or what we think until we bleed with grace in our relationships. And so Jesus continues and he says, go and point out their fault just between the two of you. And this is where it gets real because our, uh, you know, our observation of somebody's actions, now they have to turn into a real conversation where it's face to face. And if I'm really tied into obeying Jesus, if I really have to do this, God, if you're really calling me into healthy relationships, and, and because I don't like conflict and I like to avoid it, I'm probably going to do a few things before I go and have that conversation. Like, for example, I'm probably going to take a really deep breath and go, okay, how is this action really landing on me? Like, is this a conversation that I really need to have? I mean, again, I... I'll go through a day and I'll, I'll, I'll sin all sorts of times all the way through the day. Do I really need to have a conversation about everything that goes on in my relationships? 
And you say, well, Sean, you, you got to speak the truth. Come on, man. We got to be, be truth tellers. And I'm like, yes, we do. But we also have to exercise wisdom and patience in our relationships. Proverbs 19.11 says, A person's wisdom yields patience, and it is to one's glory to overlook an offense. So I'm probably going to ask myself, is this conversation necessary? How is the action landing on me, landing on others, landing on the community? James chapter 1 says, everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. If we want our relationships to be right, We have to enter into these difficult situations with patience and wisdom and more than anything else, love. I mean, love really is the key to working these things out in this process, right? In fact, you may, you may say to yourself, man, if I'm going to have this conversation, I really ought to really check and see what my love level is for that person. Am I going into this situation just wanting them to be wrong? Or, or do I love this person? Am I trying to restore this relationship? And so, and so maybe I need to give myself a little love test. Maybe I need to take sort of a pop quiz, the love quiz. There's actually a love test in the Bible. Did you guys know this? It's in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You may have heard it at a wedding, but I want to give it to you guys today, okay? Can I give you a little test? You came to church today, you're going to get a little test. So we're going to put it up on the board here, and, uh, and, and the way this works is wherever you see the word love or the word it, which, which refers to the word love, you just insert your name, okay? And then you kind of walk through the passage, and you can kind of see where you're at. And so just to have fun, I thought I would pick on somebody today, and my friend Ian is in the back. Everybody look back. There's Ian. Wave your hand, Ian. Ian's running the stuff back there. He's the general. So let's just put Ian's name in and see how he's doing, all right? And Jimmy, you keep him honest. So, so here we go, Ian. Uh, Ian is patient. Ian is kind. He's already laughing, all right? Um, Ian does not envy, Ian does not boast, Ian is not proud, Ian does not dishonor others, Ian is not self-seeking, Ian is not easily angered, Ian keeps no records of wrong. How's it going so far? You alive? Your heart beating? Where did you go? He's left. I don't know. (laughs) Ian does not delight in evil but rejoices in the truth. Ian always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always of ears. Give Ian a hand. Thank you, buddy. Here's the issue with this. When we go to our brother or sister to show them their fault, <laughs> hey, John, we need to do some uh, conflict resolution here, all right? All right, that was The point is, if I'm going to confront somebody, it's probably, going to, it's probably going to be painful. There's probably actually not going to be a lot of laughing in these conversations, right? Have you had one of these before? I think Jesus wants us to be radically self-aware of our motives. Because the goal is not retribution. You know what retribution is, right? 
Retribution is when somebody breaks a rule and they deserve to be punished. There's whole systems of justice in our world today that are retributive. God's goal is not retribution, but it's restoration. Restoration says, yeah, yeah, you broke an agreement that we had, but really the violation is not about a rule. The violation is about a relationship. You violated a relationship that we have. And and actually, restorative justice says it's an opportunity and an obligation to make things right, to make peace. And so the offender has an opportunity to make peace. And so when you want to confront somebody, but you don't go to them, instead you go to somebody else, and then you check out, and then that person goes to that person, and then the other person wants to come and talk to the first person, but that person's out. This is not the way of Jesus. This is not restorative because the relationship has no opportunity. You've never given the offender an opportunity to make things right. And so we don't do end runs in restorative justice. There's a direct path. And I'm not talking about unsafe situations, and I'm not talking about abusive situations, and I'm not talking about where where, where you have to have healthy boundaries. I believe in all of that stuff. And there's actually a process laid out for that as well. But when we don't give the offender an opportunity to come and say, hey, I want to make peace, the relationship remains broken, and I believe that the church pays for it. Because you know what happens in real life, because you live real life. What happens is that in coffee shops around town and in restaurants around town and sometimes in other churches around town, All sorts of talk goes on, and there's never a restorative opportunity. It's not about punishment. It's about mercy and forgiveness and opportunities to make things right. Jesus says, go just between the two of you, and that carries an amazing concern for the other person's feeling and their reputation. Even if there is guilt in the situation, Jesus is deeply concerned about their welfare. And then he goes on and he says, if they listen to you, you have won them over. I mean, isn't that the goal? Isn't that what God has done for us? That God has reconciled the world to himself through Christ Jesus. He's won us over. And that's what he wants For the church, the bride of Christ, for there to to be these healed, these restored, these peaceful, these transformational relationships. And maybe, just maybe, when it works out well, you also have a redemptive story to tell. And the rest of the community gets to stand up and see, wow, you made peace. And the outside looks in and says, wow, maybe the community of Jesus is different than I thought. I'm actually in the middle of, re- of a redemptive story these days. And this year, I've had a couple of conversations that I thought I would never have in a million years. And they have been beautiful, and they have been healing. And I hope one day I'm actually able to tell the redemptive story in its full. 
you have won them over. Here's the other thing about this process is Jesus doesn't set time limits. And so, you know, sometimes we want to take the Bible and apply it in a real rigid, clunky way to a situation. And you say, well, I went to the person and, you know, they didn't listen to me, which sometimes that, the whole listen to me means that they didn't agree with me. And we need to get those two things separated out. You know, just not agreeing and listening, those are two different things. But, but you know, I went to the person and, and, and it didn't work out. It didn't resolve. And so now I'm done. You drop the mic and you're out. Well, the whole thing is, is that Maybe it's not one coffee conversation. Maybe it's a series of conversations over a period of time. Just between the two of you as you begin to work on things and work on the relationship. And so Jesus doesn't set time limits, which also makes this difficult. But he does give us another step. And so if we move ahead, Jesus says to bring one or two others Along And now the conversation can continue. And so the, the point here is, is sometimes things get stuck. But if you get stuck, don't give up and don't blow up. I mean, those are the two extremes. We either say forget it or we just blow, it, blow the relationship up. And maybe there's all sorts of collateral damage and there's all sorts of things flying everywhere and reputations are destroyed. And God's heart breaks when that happens. Jesus quotes the Old Testament here, and he says, So that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Witnesses. I mean, these are... These are insiders, right? These are people that are familiar with the situation. They get what's going on. And maybe nobody else is familiar with the situation. And so now the process is is even longer because you've got to sit with that, that person and invite others into the conversation. And they need to take time to get up to speed on the whole thing so that they can really be a witness, so that they can be an insider and really be familiar with what's going on. And that also takes time. And by the way, if you're the one or two people that gets invited into somebody's conflict, you know what you get to do? You get to go all the way back and practice all of that self-awareness stuff that that first person who went to their brother or sister had to do. When you get invited into somebody's conflict, you are standing on holy ground. And Jesus invites you to consider the value of that person. He invites you into radical self-awareness. He invites you to lower your status and walk through it for the purpose of restoration. Now, the last part of this passage is challenging. It's challenging and it's frustrating because some churches ignore it altogether and some have used it again for punishment, for embarrassment, for control, for manipulation, for power. And I've seen both and both, I believe, are not the way of Jesus. Jesus came full of grace and truth, and some of you swing really far to the truth side 
of that pendulum. And so you need to ask yourself, how do I develop more grace in my life? Some of you swing really far to the grace side of the pendulum. And you need to ask yourself, how do I speak more truth in love in my relationships? Jesus came full of grace and truth. And part of following him is learning how to walk with that tension. And we don't get it right all the time. But it's a discipline and it's a battle worth waging so that we can win in our relationships. Jesus says in verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. And if they refuse to listen even to the church, treat them as you would a pagan or an outsider or a tax collector. And so what is Jesus really wanting from us here? I think it's important that we remember that Matthew is the one writing this gospel. First of all, in the ancient setting that he's writing is probably near the end of the first century, and most of the churches are small. Most of the churches meet in homes. Most of the churches were not American megachurches. This is not what Jesus is thinking about. Someday there's going to be these churches of thousands of people, and you're going to have to bring people up on stage and tell everybody their sin and all of their garbage and everything, and then we're going to kick them out into the world so that they can learn how to not cross us, how to not sin. Jesus isn't thinking like this. His church that he's thinking about is probably more like one of our small groups. And so again, it's an intimate setting. It's a relational setting. And on top of that, you know what Matthew was when he was called to follow Jesus? He was a tax collector. If anybody knew how Jesus treated tax collectors and outsiders, it was Matthew. What did Jesus do? He went to Matthew's house. What did they do at the house? They hung out with a bunch of sinners and they had a big party. Who got mad at that? Not Matthew. The religious leaders, the rigid, the power brokers, they're the ones who got upset about it. And what did Jesus say to them? Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Uh, You can go through all of the religious action and destroy your brother or sister in Jesus because you lack mercy. That's what Jesus is saying. Here's how one theologian put it. And I love this. He says, Whatever led anyone to conclude that when Matthew, who knows how Jesus treats tax collectors, wrote, Treat him like a Gentile and a tax collector, that he meant, Get him out of here. Have nothing to do with him. I think he means exactly the opposite. I think he means love him, accept him, invite him. Eat with him and keep on challenging him to be transformed into a faithful disciple of Jesus. God expects us to live according to our mutually discerned convictions. However, when someone later says, yes, I know that we agreed together, but I'm not going to listen. Then the church filled with sorrow because this ought to be painful. The church filled with sorrow says, you are for us, then then you are for us as a Gentile 
and a tax collector. We love you, but we recognize that you are opting out of this fellowship. You, you are not acting like an insider to be reconciled, but an outsider to be drawn back. Won't you come? Please. When you do, you will be brought back into the fellowship once more. This is what it means to treat a member as an outsider or a tax collector. We love them like we love outsiders, not through shuns and judgment, but through the love that Jesus demonstrated at Matthew's party. This is the key to reconciliation, this sort of good treatment. When we make our convictions about behavior clear, has the potential to lead to genuine repentance and a reconciled community. We have values at Lakeside. Do you know what they are? We've done sermons on them. We talk about them. We try to unpack them. They're aspirational. We try our best to live these out, and we, and we mess up all the time. The first one is we give ourselves to others. Because we just believe that this is the model of Jesus. The second one is, is that we celebrate life-giving grace. All of these ribbons and the baptisms and the stories, whether they're on Facebook or on the stage or whether we're talking about them in our small groups or wherever it might be, it's all about celebrating life-giving grace. And when that one little sheep that wandered away comes back, there is this major celebration. We celebrate life-giving grace. And the third one's the hardest. And you'll notice that we don't say we are meek because a lot of times we're not. But we say we love meekness. These are the values that we agree to live by at Lakeside. And when we choose to check out on those, it's time for a conversation. But that conversation has to be filled with process and wisdom and a heart that's filled with love. I wish I could continue on and go through the rest of Matthew 18, but I can't. But what I can do is give you some homework. You guys didn't know you were going to get homework today, did you? Well, your kids have it, so why shouldn't you have a little homework? Here's your homework. I want you to read the rest of Matthew 18. The next couple of verses are, are, are a bit esoteric, and people use those in weird ways, and I'm not going to talk about those, but, but there's a story that follows. I mean, it starts with Peter, because Peter hears all of this, all about status, and all about love, and all about radical self-awareness, and all about conflict resolution, and he comes to Jesus, and he wants to talk about forgiveness. You know how Peter is. He's like, hey, Lord, you know, how many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times, which in in Jewish culture, was the perfect amount of times. It was, it was a very Jewish way of saying, I've forgiven perfectly, because in their law, they only had to do it three times. And after that, they could just say, I'm done with you. And Jesus blows them out of the water. In some gospels, he says, no, up to 70 times. And in others, he says, 70 times seven. They were both very Jewish ways of saying, I want you to cultivate the kind of love in your relationships where your forgiveness will never end. We don't get to stop the grace train. And then Jesus tells a story, and the story is all about grace, unbelievable grace. And so what I want you to do is read the story, and I want, 
I want you to ask a few questions. One is, why does Matthew put the story there? At the end of this chapter that we've worked through, why does he put that story there? I want you to ask yourself, who are you in the story? Who do you identify with? How about the person you're in conflict with? Who are they in the story? Who is God in the story? And as we do this together, our prayer is for restoration and healing. Our prayer is to be the best at giving mercy of anybody in the world. This is our call. Would you pray with me? Jesus, thanks so much for your amazing love. You are a God of reconciliation. God, your word says that when we were off doing our own thing, when we were yet sinners, you died for us. You didn't wait for us to clean up our act. You, you showered us with love, even when we didn't know that you were doing that. And so, God, I, I pray that we would treat one another in the same way. That our relationships would bleed with grace. And God, we need your power to do that. We need your wisdom to do that. We need your patience to do that. We need your courage to do that. And so God, in, in this room today, uh, no doubt there are all sorts of conflicts going on and there are broken hearts, but your, your desire is to repair and restore. You want to restore marriages. You want to restore fathers to their, to their boys and, and moms to their daughters. And you want to restore brothers and sisters and friends and neighbors. God, you, you want to bring people back together. So would you be powerful in our relationships? We ask for that. And God, as we do, we'll continue to follow you. In the name of Jesus, amen.